Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Today's show is brought to you by OnPay, the new standard in payroll. You can pay employees and contractors in minutes, automate your payroll taxes and filings, as well as provide health benefits and HR in all 50 states. For more information, visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash onpay. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Will Rhine. He's the founder and CEO at Granite Shares. Will, welcome to the show. Kevin, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at uh, Granite Shares is actually really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into all that stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm from Scotland originally. Um, I'm from a place called Aberdeen, which is the, the city, third largest city in Scotland. But it's probably what most people would gravitate to on the map. I'm actually from... Uh, a small town uh, kind of in the country outside of there, um, a little place um, that is about 14 miles west um, up the valley. And so I grew up there, very rural surrounding. Um, you know, you look out of your, your bedroom window and you can't see anything for miles around. And um, that was kind of my upbringing. So I went to, to school uh, in Ann Aberdeen. And when I say school, I mean high school. Uh, and then after that, I went to college down in England. I went to uh, to Bath University, um, kind of the one of the probably the, the furthest places away from from Aberdeen on the map, if you want to look at it like that. <laughs> what did you take in university, and why? So when I was at um, school, I probably followed what I did best at the time, and I always had an interest in languages. And I guess still to this day, it's a big passion of mine in terms of traveling and, uh, you know, seeing other cultures and countries. And so that, that was what I was, I was good at um, at high school. And so I ended up doing that at university. Um, and so I ended up doing uh, French and Russian, oh, uh, which I started from, from scratch uh, at university. Wow. And there were other subjects as well, but those are kind of the two, the two major ones. Okay. So you get out of university Walk us through your career up until founding Granite Shares. Yeah, so Bath of itself is kind of a college town. So it's in southwest of England. It's a small place. It's a really beautiful town built by the Romans, um, original you know, spa town. Uh, you can still go to the Roman baths um, to this day. They still, still exist. That's cool. Um, beautiful place, but it's kind of dominated by the universities. Actually, there's actually a couple of sort of higher education uh, entities there, but... Um, suffice to say that if you want to, to get a job after university, Bath is not the, probably the first place you'd look. And so for the majority of people in the UK, you, know, you look to London as being the, the major kind of hub where you want to go and start your, your career, at least at the very least, probably work for at least a couple of years. Um, but for me, that was the obvious choice. And I, to be honest with you, again, growing up in, in Aberdeen, I knew nothing about finance, um, nothing about Wall Street or the investing world. And it was really just um, a kind of prominent recruiting thing, I guess, or on campus, you'd see 
the the banks and other you know accountancy firms, management consultancy type businesses being quite dominant um, in terms of coming out and trying to recruit students. And obviously, some of my friends um, were kind of going that direction with their career as well. And so, I applied for jobs uh, within the banking sort of world and ended up getting accepted to a Japanese investment bank actually called Nomura, um, which is still the largest uh, Japanese investment bank in the world. Um, but I went and did that as my first job out of college. Uh, worked in, you know, as a graduate trainee, if you will, and did a number of different jobs on a kind of rotation um, and then moved to my second job after kind of a year and a half working there, which was um, Barclays Global Investors. Um, which which most people would know now as um, BlackRock. So at the time, um, BlackRock bought the company several years later. But when I worked for it, it was originally Barclays. And how I got how I got involved with what I'm doing now, or the tie back into what I'm doing now, is that we were working on a product at that time called the Exchange Traded Fund. Um, we were launching in Europe. It launched in the U.S. Um, and Canada before that, um, and it was sort of starting to become a a big deal. And I was just, you know, right place, right time, happened to be at the beginning or the dawn of this industry and really just could see how this was being appreciated by clients. And this new product, this new technology um, became ultimately huge. And I followed it throughout my entire career. And so what started, you know, from very humble beginnings is now a $6 trillion industry around the world. And um, this, this product, this exchange-traded fund, really is the way that the majority of investors now choose to invest uh, outside of individual stocks. And it's kind of replacing, um, and in many cases has replaced the mutual fund, which is the traditional vehicle. And um, you know, from, from Barclays, I did a startup, so I wanted to get close to the business, uh, had a great experience, um, taught me a huge amount about you know, building and, and running a business, although I was not the founder, I was working for a founder. And therefore, the natural sort of evolution for me always at the back of my mind was one day I'd like to do this myself. And so after that, I um, ended up running the largest gold uh, ETF in the world, the largest commodity fund in the world. Uh, I was a CEO at the, the GLD ETF um, for two and a half years. And then finally, I went out on my own at the beginning of 2016 and so decided that an area of the market that, that I thought I could improve on, you know, like most entrepreneurs, I think we have a view of offering clients a better product at a better price. And that was kind of the genesis for, for shaking up the, the industry. And so I set up Granite Shares with this basic, um, basic notion of revolutionizing or disrupting the hard asset space and, okay. you know, offering access to, to gold and commodities at a lower cost and at a better structure than anybody else was doing in the market. And so that's how I got going. And then, you know, three, three years later, we just now, I guess we're three years old in May. Um, but one and a half billion dollars later, um, we're, we're growing, uh, yeah, growing, growing strong. And we have businesses in Europe uh, as well as here in the United States. Very cool. So what made you actually make the, the leap to doing your own thing? Because sure, I think a lot of people think like, oh, I can do something or this better, but they never actually make that leap to, to actually do it. So what motivated you to go back on your own and do it yourself? Well, I think part of the answer to that question is the experience I had at a startup previously. 
And, okay. you know, part of that was obviously it was a successful startup. Um, so that, that's a huge, a huge point. Cause I know a lot of startups, um, that, you know, they're, they're not that successful. Sure. And so I had firsthand experience, uh, in terms of what it really took to build a business. And so I think that probably took away some of the, um, anxiety perhaps that people go through when they think about starting a business on their own for the first time. And indeed, you know, further to that, it wasn't just working at the startup. I should have mentioned that, um, how I ended up in New York, uh, where I'm speaking to you from today, is I moved to the States with that company to set oh, okay. up uh, their business in New York. And so I literally, although I was working for, for a company, um, it was me that came over and opened, you know, established an office, hired a team, launched products, built a business. And so from that perspective, I kind of had a lot of experience in terms of what to do. Yeah. And therefore... You know, from my from my view, it was never the risk that that gets you know commonly associated with starting your own business, in the sense that I knew I could make it work, or at least had a lot of conviction that that would be the case. Um, and so, from that perspective, I think I, you know, I would never have done it if I didn't have the conviction that I couldn't add value to people, um, and that I couldn't create a product that would be a commercial success. And so, I think. Um, you know, starting the business was less um, less of an issue for me. I mean, there's certainly been trials and tribulations along the way, but I think that initial decision to start was definitely aided by the experience I'd already have, plus I had high conviction in what I was doing. Interesting. So walk us through actually creating a company in the, the fintech space, because, like, did you self-fund it? How did you actually get the thing off the ground and going? Uh, it's a great question. Um, so when I, I mean, I originally like everything, I started it on my, my own right. um, and I started a business. However, you know, what it takes to set up a FinTech company is different than a lot of other startups and other industries. And I'll start by saying the major thing that we have to, to navigate and negotiate is the regulatory environment. Sure. So imagine. Financial, you know, financial services is probably the highly, most highly regulated industry on the planet. Right. And so, you know, I always made the joke that um, I had to spend, you know, several million dollars before I could even sell a product. Um, and, and that's, you know, crazy to people that don't come from this industry. In other right. words, that the, the process of setting up the legal entities, getting the regulatory licenses, approvals, everything else that goes with that, building out the infrastructure for you to even be able to offer a product costs a huge amount of money and takes a huge amount of time. So you know, from start to finish, it took us a year to build out the infrastructure uh, and to get all the regulatory licenses, et cetera, and set up the infrastructure, do negotiate um, you know, contracts with vendors, uh, everything that we needed just to be in a position to actually launch a product. Um, and that process took, took a year. So I, I had to raise money. Ultimately, I couldn't self-finance the whole thing. Got and you. so I raised a, a series seed round initially um, from venture capital investors. And ultimately, I, I chose to partner with Bain Capital. And they're, they're my, um, my largest investor even to this day. Um, but I partnered with Bain Capital Ventures. And they led my series seed round. Uh, and that's how we got started. Very cool. So I think, and, and I mentioned uh, to you before we kind of started recording, like 
I've done a little bit investing and I have some like savings and some retirement stuff, but I've done a little bit of stock stuff and I, I would like to do more. So how do you work with somebody like myself that is a pretty kind of beginner at this whole thing? Or do you work with people that are more advanced or kind of somebody like me and everywhere in between up to kind of the most advanced investor? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So an exchange traded fund, let me just start by saying what it is. Um, so sure. it's literally a fund um, that is listed on a stock exchange. Okay. And the shares of that fund are bought and sold or traded just like the shares of any company that you're familiar with. So it's no different to buying shares in Apple, for example. Instead of buying shares in Apple, the one company, you're buying shares in a fund that fund could give you exposure to multiple companies or something like gold or a basket or an index of bonds. Um, so it's really just buying and selling shares in a vehicle, a fund, as opposed to an actual individual company. So that's what an exchange traded fund is. And um, in terms of you know who we work with or, or what our business is, because it's listed on the stock exchange, that means that anybody can buy it as long as you have access to a brokerage account. So what some people may find as being a little bit uh, unusual, perhaps, if you're especially familiar with the consumer tech world, is that um, you, the customer, don't deal with us, the manufacturer. The middleman, effectively, is who you deal with, and that's really the stock exchange. Gotcha. And so we are really a B2B business um, from the perspective that we manufacture investment funds, we list them on the stock exchange, um, but we talk to intermediaries um, really because they're the people that are sort of distributing, if you will, our products. That's financial advisors, it's you know, hedge funds, mutual funds, et cetera. Um, and individual investors tend to interact directly with their broker um, as opposed to the manufacturer, which would be us. So, um, although we, although our fund can be bought by anyone, the reality is, is that, um, we're talking to financial advisors and financial intermediaries who themselves are then kind of reselling or using our product in their managed portfolios. Got you. Okay. So how do you get like my financial advisor or other financial advisors actually recommending your stocks to me? So most financial advisors, they obviously run a series of portfolios. Right. And those portfolios, all things being equal, should be kind of tailored for the clients that they serve. Okay. And so, you know, it's not as simple as this, but, but let's sort of break it down into, you know, the, the kind of key investment needs that most people have. Sure. So either you're investing for income or you're investing for capital growth or you're investing for diversification purposes, or maybe it's a combination of those three. But those kind of fundamental tenants, uh, somewhere along the lines, the portfolio that you'll be served will, will kind of be tailored towards one or more of those objectives. And so what we will say to the financial advisor is, you know, hey, Mr. Financial Advisor or Mrs. Financial Advisor, you know, we have um, a way for you, a better way for you to get exposure to one of those three things. And, you know, if you ran your portfolio using, you know, this solution or that solution, um, potentially you'd be able to generate a better return with less risk. I mean, that, that's the ultimate. And so that's kind of what um, the proposition is. 
And we try and identify, you know, advisors, individual investors that have exposure to these core themes, um, and then try and you know educate them on why you know our solution could be could be a potentially good fit for them. Okay, interesting. So, how do you guys decide what to kind of go after and actually put on the stock exchange? That's a great, great question. So from that perspective, we're no different in many ways from any kind of manufacturer or product company that you'd okay. be familiar with. Okay. So in the same way that Apple has to decide what products to launch that will benefit, suit, work on a commercial basis for their customer base, we have to do the same thing for investment markets. And so part of that is always, I think there are kind of three pillars. Um, Part of that is about, is there, is there a gap in the market that exists currently that no one is fulfilling? And that's what I call unique property or unique um, IP. Okay. And so that, that's also the hardest thing to do because that's the one where you have to really see around corners. You have to be able to say, okay, what, what is missing in the market that I know or we feel will be popular with people, um, but that has not been provided today. And so that's the unique part. And then the, the, probably the more common variants are the next two, which would be, can you improve on an already successful product in the market, but ultimately deliver a more favorable outcome to the investor? And can you do that by either improving the structure? So that might be to generate a more favorable tax outcome to the investor. It might be to generate um, a better underlying return. Um, whatever it may be, but can you kind of improve upon an existing solution that's already successful? And then the last one is the same in any business, which is just, can you improve price-wise? So can you take something that's already successful and can you offer people just a better, a lower cost? And from that perspective, you're going to win business because people understand what the investment is already. Um, they accept that investment, but they're buying it for you because you are offering a better price than competitors. So I think those, those are kind of the three pillars that we look at. Um, okay. And, you know, we try and, uh, and use that lens you know, when we're thinking about products to bring to market. Okay. No, that makes total sense. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on the current landscape and climate, because it seems to me that there's people, I, people are kind of in two camps right now. It's like they're not working and, you know, they're, they're very stressed out about that. And, or there's people that are just like completely swamped and, and overworked. And sure, I'm sure there's people in the middle, but it seems to be um, quite dynamic right now. So mm -hmm. how has that affected the markets? Ha has the market kind of recovered since the pandemic? Or, or where are we kind of at maybe in North America and maybe globally, if, if you have some thoughts? So... Um, in terms of where we're at, the, the market has recovered uh, since the pandemic. Okay. And if you look at stock prices, um, at least here in North America, um, stock prices are at or near all-time highs. Okay. And a lot of people might think that that is incredibly odd, given yeah, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> in the what? middle of a global pandemic. Yes. Um, and as, as we all know, there's millions of people being put out of work, vast areas of the economy that have effectively been shut down and are unlikely to rebound quickly. 
And throw on top of that, at least here in the States, we have a general election coming up in November. So there's all sorts of uncertainty. I think what people perhaps um, don't necessarily uh, understand, and they need to understand, is that there has been, uh, as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and the market crash that happened back in March, a huge um, fiscal and monetary response from the central bank. And, and this is not just the, the Federal Reserve, but obviously that's the most relevant for US markets, but um, it's central banks all around the world. And money printing has been the, the favored response uh, to the crisis. And basically what that means is that the, the central bank literally uh, manufactures money uh, in a way to um, try and counterbalance the effects of the, 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 the ultimate demand shock that's created in the economy. And that stimulus or money printing, as people call it, has really sort of overwhelmed markets, at least on a short-term basis. Okay. Um, and the playbook from when this happened before and what a lot of investors are really living by is the response, this was created as a response to the 2008 financial crisis, um, where um, printing money, stimulus, et cetera, was the, the, the method that was used, uh, the response to the market collapse. And what people saw was that what that did was it pushed up asset prices. And asset prices, the most visible of all is the stock market, but it also extended to, to house prices, other things, um, that as, uh, as the, the stimulus kind of worked its way into the markets, it was really uh, asset prices that were the main beneficiary of all of this. And so I think what investors learned from that is that uh, when you get these situations, you buy the market, the market will almost almost certainly go up because of this stimulus factor. And that's what people are, are relying on. Okay. So is there like another crash coming or, or do we have to be worried that it's so doing so well? Or what are your thoughts around that? Well, I think there's, there's a number of, you know, there's a number of things to think about and certainly a lot of things to be concerned about. Uh, and you don't necessarily need to have another crash for there to be um, serious economic problems. Um, but I think suffice to say, if there is another crash, uh, and that's brought on by a second wave or some other uh, thing that that we're we're not we're not party to right now, um, one thing we know for sure is that there'll be more stimulus um, from central banks. And when there's more stimulus, you know, it'll create more money printing. I think one of the big things people are worried about is inflation and right. worried about, you know, what, what is the consequence of doing this? That when you have zero interest rates uh, and you're printing money, you're increasing the supply of dollars uh, in the market. And, and there must be a consequence to this because it, it cannot be the case, all things being equal, that this is a consequence-free tool. Otherwise, everyone would just print money, you know, forever. And why would we all need to work and do anything else? It would just get money from the government and everything would be fine. Um, but as we know, it doesn't work like that. And typically the reason it doesn't work is because that's inflationary and inflation is the enemy of, of markets and savings. And so that's why there's been a lot of interest in gold, for example. And that's why gold prices uh, made an all time high um, very recently. Um, because people are now looking for ways to diversify away from stocks um, in a way to try and manage this potential negative consequence of, of these policies. Right. Okay. Because like at the end of the day, 
the government's going to need to get their money back, right? Like at some point doing something <laughs> like, is that not fair to say? Like, it's like they're pumping all this money for what, it, like, and then they're going to have to tax it or, or get it back some way when you have to do your tax fund or, or, or like what's going to happen with all this money that they've been giving to people to keep, you know, the economy going. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. You're, you're basically uh, lining up, um, you know, one of the key arguments or one of the key debate topics um, for the November election, which is, well, how, how do you pay for it? And uh, how do you pay for this response? And that response does have to be paid for. And the way it's going to be paid for is higher taxes. Um, right. And you, you either create um, higher taxes, which you know, for, for the most part, is very unpopular with, with voters, or you're able to engineer um, some kind of controlled inflation or inflation that, um, you know, inflates the debt away, so to speak. Interesting. So I'm curious then, with the market being as strong as it is right now, and obviously there's companies, especially in the tech space right now, um, that are even going to go to IPO right now. And there's a bunch of them that have gotten uh, like just insane valuations since the pandemic. How have you seen like some companies do so well and it's almost like booming in a lot of cases. And, and mm -hmm. like, it's almost like, in, it sounds terrible to say, but like the pandemic has really made some companies like very, very valuable. So how do you kind of balance that out and decide what to maybe put on the stock market that's maybe relevant now that will probably maybe level off in the future or what you still think has like a ton of growth, right? Like, is there strategies yeah. around that or, or what is your thoughts around that? Yeah, so we, so we, um, we bought a new kind of concept, completely new idea to market um, in October last year. We launched a new fund and the strategy in shorthand is called X out and okay. X out is the shorthand for exclusion or excluding companies. Okay. And our thesis was that um, tech disruption was happening at such an unprecedented level in all sectors of the market that actually what investors should be thinking about was tech disruption as really the most extreme or one of the, uh, most prevalent forward-facing risks that, that they probably are not aware of. Right. And so how do you try and insulate yourself or future-proof your portfolio um, from these um, disruption events? And our strategy was because tech disruption itself is not a, is not a factor, it's not a thing that you can measure, um, we thought about creating a strategy where we would exclude companies that we thought would be vulnerable uh, or at risk of tech disruption. And actually the best way to invest was actually not so much what you put into your portfolio, but it was what you leave or left out. And by excluding losers, as opposed to picking winners, we felt like that was a fundamentally easier thing to do, potentially, um, that over the long term would allow a portfolio to, you know, the winners would look after themselves. And, and again, that theory was largely borne out by the dominance of mega cap tech in the US anyway, and that 
you know, our argument was that you already own the winners. You know, that's already those stocks, those five stocks, um, they're the ones that are driving nearly all the market performance, all the market returns. Right. So instead of trying to figure out who's going to be the next Google, because that's incredibly difficult to do. Right. What we know is that it may be easier to identify who are the companies that are fundamentally disadvantaged by technology? Who are the, who are the people that are suffering? And actually, let's leave them out. Okay. And that might be the key to better returns. And that strategy has outperformed the broad market. I mean, we've only been going since October, so we're coming up on a year's performance. But right. um, so far, we've outperformed um, the S&P 500 net of fees by over 10%. Um, it's really been astonishing. And it's largely because we stayed clear of companies that were, were in our opinion, were, were not performing well before COVID. Right. But COVID has, what has done has been this tech detonation event where, you know, I like to think of it for people as being, you know, what COVID did was really drive a huge chasm between the digital economy and the physical economy. Right. So if your business relied on the physical economy, so take the, take the, the, um, the stereotypical expression of that, like a bar or a restaurant that didn't do online. And let's say you're just reliant on physical business and you got shut down. Yeah. But if you're digital, if you're an Amazon, if you're a business that you know, provide access to the stock market or any other industry that remained open, but that was able to not just survive, but thrive in that digital environment, then you are just able to capture a lot more, you know, growth, market share, et cetera, because of it. And I think that, you know, what we are seeing right now uh, in terms of COVID and the effect on the economy is that, you know, the, the 10 years or the next 10 years worth of tech disruption that people were thinking about, in many ways, I think that's just been accelerated and they've been brought forward into the last few months. And so, you know, you just think about our business of fintech or financial technology, you think about um, wherever you are in the world, there's a vast way of the population that um, was still going to local banking branches. You know, so still do their banking by going to a local branch. And when the, when the lockdowns hit and those bank branches closed, you couldn't do your banking unless you were on, online. So it was forced a huge amount of people online for the first time. And now those people, for the most part, aren't going to look back. Right. And that's bringing people into the digital age, interacting with digital financial services. And we saw all over the market, um, record trading volumes in terms, of the, in terms of the market, you know, companies like Robinhood, um, really you know, being a sort of cultural zeitgeist you know, for this pandemic. And um, you know, I think that if you, if you don't have a tech strategy, um, in many ways, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not looking good. And I think in the simplest term, every company kind of has to become a tech company, you know, in order right. to survive going forward. No, I, I think that's, that's really good advice. So for people that are maybe like have either not really bought stocks before or, or have bought like a little bit and, and still kind of new at it, what advice do you give to people that are looking to actually buying some stocks? Is there like, a certain amount of money you should maybe start with or, or what are your thoughts around that? The good news is it's never been a better time to be an investor. Okay. Um, and 
you know, the last 20 years has been incredible amount of, of innovation. And so whether you want to just trade stocks, whether you want to participate in a long-term investment plan, uh, whether you want to kind of do a savings account, whatever you want to do, there is probably more than likely a consumer-based, you know, financial technology app uh, or service available to you that will uh, allow you to do this uh, very easily, very cost-effectively. I think, um, you know, a few things have changed since I was growing up in that, you know, when I was growing up, I have to be honest, and this is obviously a UK perspective, so excuse, excuse this, but it may, um, it may be relevant to you listening as well if you're in, in North America, is that you know, when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of investing in the stock market, um, especially by young people. Right. And that's because young people were always told that the only thing you had to do was save up enough money to buy a property. So there could be an apartment or buy a house, but you had to just get on the property ladder, as the, as the British would say. And so all, all you had to do was you'd work hard, save your money, and then get on the property ladder because property was the only sure thing. That was the thing that would rise in value over time. Uh, and that was the, the best way to sort of generate wealth. The second thing was that investing in the stock market was not all that relevant because... By the time you came to retirement, um, you could get a state pension and you'd be on a generous state pension. So there was not really any need to invest. Right. Now, both of those things have done a complete about face, you know, certainly in my lifetime. And first and foremost, and I think this is a, a North American phenomenon just as much as it is a British phenomenon, but getting on the property ladder is now not really a realistic prospect for yeah. a lot of um, pe people today. And so house prices have gone up you know, considerably over time. And the case that your starting salary or salary that you earned, you know, one or two jobs after you started would be enabled, be enough to buy your first apartment in London or house in London. Now long, now it's a pipe dream. It doesn't exist. You can't do that. And the similarly state pension is largely gone as well in terms of any, any expectation of a good one. And so what does that all mean? It means that, people have to invest in the market because that's the only accessible tool really in order for you to build wealth over time. And the response to that um, from, you know, the financial services community, but the FinTech community, I think, you know, has really been um, in order to kind of enable that in the best possible way. So, you know, my advice to people is always just as simple. It's just get going, you know, start learning today, start doing something there is no one, there's no one piece of advice that I can give that's going to make you a great investor. Um, but I think the one thing that I would say just more generally is that people just have to get going. Like the hardest thing is always just to start, take that first step, you know, open that account, um, start to invest. I mean, obviously there are long-term strategies and short-term, but I think financial education has never been better uh, in terms of what you'll read out there from, uh, you know, established manufacturers, from uh, independent third parties, from YouTube tutorials, you know, all sorts of things. There's never been more access to information and good information about investing. And then the actual products and services that you'll use, you've never been able to access markets in a cheaper way and more accessible way than you can today. And, that, and that's a phenomenal thing. Sure. So is there like a minimum that people should start with or kind of a maximum they should start with? Um, like, is it a few hundred dollars? Is it a couple thousand dollars? Is it tens of thousands of dollars? 
Well, I think first of all, we all want to sleep at night. So I would sure. certainly never, never recommend people uh, invest in anything that don't feel comfortable uh, sleeping at night. So for some people that might be a few dollars, a few hundred dollars for other people that might be a few thousand dollars. But um, I think the point is that you need to understand what you're investing in. So that means everything from understanding the products. Uh, if you're investing in company shares, you understand what that company does, trying to understand what drives or moves the share price. Um, but at the same time, you don't, you don't invest. There's an old um, thing about you know, investing money that you're not prepared, you wouldn't be prepared to lose. Uh, and I think that that's a bit extreme because when you're investing, you shouldn't be thinking about losing your money. You should be thinking about you know, how to, to use this money to, to grow over time. Right. Um, but I think people should always be able to sleep at night and just not have to worry about it. And so, you know, the market moves up and down. It's very important to be able to, you know, look beyond the down days as it were. And so like, for example, in March, um, where you had the big collapse, if you're a longer term investor, if you're more younger or a younger investor than an older investor, those kind of things you don't want to sell. You certainly don't want to sell. Right. Um, if anything, you want to be adding more buying when the market goes down. Um, but it's just a question of, you know, you've got to take a longer term, longer term objective. Right. And what advice do you give to people that are looking for an advisor? Like what should they be looking for in a money manager? It depends on what they're looking for. So before you even look, um, before you even look for a money manager, um, I think you got to be thinking about what kind of investment service do you need? So specifically financial advice. I mean, again, that's another area that's been massively disrupted. Um, and, you know, once upon a time, it used to be the case that you would get somebody else to manage your money. Right. Um, and that was largely due to the fact there was no information and there was no products and services for you to really be able to do that yourself. Um, and all that's changed. And so the access to information is there. The access to the products and services are there. I think a lot of people use a financial advisor um, because ultimately it's more than just investing. It's about you know, holistic financial planning, which a lot of people, that's where they really find the value. Right. So making sure that someone's saying, hey, no, it's not just about, you know, we'll obviously invest your money or grow your money over time, hopefully, but you know, what about your wife? What about your kids, your financial planning? Do you have life insurance? Do you have a will? All these other things that, that perhaps you wouldn't think of when you're just thinking about a pure investment lens. Um, and, and, you know, that's the reason to, to look at financial advisor. But again, now, just like anything else, there's financial advisor you know, sites that do reviews and, and all sorts of things. But I think if it's just pure investing, again, there's a service that's called Robo Advisors. Uh, Robo Advisors is shorthand for, you know, kind of model portfolios or um, portfolios that are done by a computer. So there's no advisor involved. Right. Um, and you can, you know, most of the major investment services, your Schwab's, your Fidelity's, your, you know, big, big name brands um, offer these types of services as do the, the upstart sort of fintech companies. And there you can get started for very low monthly fees. Um, and again, just invest in a diversified portfolio that's going to give you that investment experience. Um, and you know, that's a very sort of no thrills way to go about it. No, I, I think that's really good advice, but we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close 
with mentioning anything else you, you want to quickly talk about and where people can get more information about uh, Granite Shares? Yeah, no, absolutely. So what we do at Granite Shares is really the, the three core pillars. So we focus on your diversification through real assets, so gold, uh, commodities, uh, income. So we have an income strategy that generates a very high level of income for people, which is unusual. And then we have the X-Out strategy, which is our long-term capital growth, um, which is all about excluding companies uh, that we think vulnerable to tech disruption. And certainly anybody looks to, to get more information um, from us or any of those, um, our website is graniteshares.com. Just as it sounds, granite like the rock, shares as in company shares.com. And um, you'll find a lot of information, useful information there. But obviously, please feel free to reach out to us directly as well. Um, and we can try and help any way we can. And, uh, and even if it's just to you know, recommend other services, et cetera, um, happy to do that too. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Kevin, thank you so much for having me. It's been really good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.